This is a reading from Luke chapter 23, 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. I thought that my career trajectory was on a, on, a, on a certain path that I was going to be an actor and I got a job uh, as an intern in this huge mega church in South Florida doing uh, arts ministry for high school and middle school students. And it was sort of this bridge job between the, the career trajectory I thought I was on and the one that, that actually God ended up leading, leading my life on. And uh, this church internship was, uh, you know, uh, not, not illustrious at, at all. Um, most of the compensation for, for the work, and there was tons of work, was, um, was uh, they gave you housing uh, with all the other student ministry interns. So all the guys that were interns at this big church lived in one house together, and we called it the monastery. No, no women were allowed on the premises, um, and the ladies had their own house, and we were also not, I don't even know, I didn't even know the name of that house. I wasn't allowed near there. So... Um, and I have this very strong memory of living in this house with all these ministry interns together. And we found out that Mel Gibson was making a Jesus movie. Remember when you found that out? Where were you when you find out, found out Mel Gibson? I mean, hadn't you longed for that ever since you saw Lethal Weapon as a kid? When is this guy going to make a film about the life of Jesus? And I, I do remember gathering around. This was like, um, I... I, I I was technologically uh, remedial. I didn't get a cell phone until after college. I, I like, you know, just looked look stuff up on, on, on the internet when I had projects to do. So, like, watching a trailer online was a new phenomenon for, for me. And I remember gathering around with the other guys of the monastery and watching the trailer of The Passion of the Christ. And I remember it because I had, a, I had a actually, like, surprisingly emotional reaction to the trailer. And all these other guys are sitting around that I live with, so we're just sort of like, <coughs> just going to be backing up now. Um, and the part that got me, and I don't know if you guys remember this trailer, it's 2004, so I'm stretching your memory a little bit. Um, but the trailer for the movie was, just, it was so, <laughs> was, was intense, um, and the most powerful moment for me was this flash of a scene. It's one of those trailers where they're flashing different scenes of, of Jesus' life. And they flash the scene where the woman is caught in the act of adultery. She's been dragged out into the street. And they're calling for Jesus to make a response 
to what should be done to her since she's, she's obviously been, been found guilty of, the, of this crime. And there's this slow motion moment. Do you remember this from the trailer? A slow motion moment of Jesus riding in the sand and his fingers, like heavenly fingers dragging across the sand like little sand particles. Are, 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 are. You guys don't remember this? Some of you do. Thank you, Christians. Um, it's, it's right before the moment, right, where he famously in the gospel says, let whoever is without sin cast the first stone. But the picture, just the, the finger in the sand, because we don't know, like theologians don't know exactly what Jesus wrote in the sand, but something powerful happened there because these people who were ready to stone this woman and were expecting, right, Jesus is in a trap. She is trapped and humiliated. She, the text tells us that she was caught in the act of adultery. So she's been literally humiliated and now dragged into the street and her life is being threatened. But Jesus is also trapped to some degree because they're trying to find a way to find out that he doesn't really value the law of Moses and is not going to uphold the law. And so if he lets her off the hook, he, 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 he confirms that suspicion. Uh, but if he, if, he, if he calls for her condemnation, now he's not the, the gracious uh, hero of the people that he's growing to, to, to become. And so what, what's he going to do in this moment? And he does something that finds an impossible way through their trap. And he, he, he draws in the sand. And then he, he says, whoever is without sin cast the first stone. And the, the emotional weight of that hit me. And just a flash of a trailer, right? It's one of those things like a picture really is sometimes worth a thousand words. And it just captured my imagination. Oh my I can't believe he, fi- he finds this way, this way through. And he shows her this mercy. He sets her free. He humbles the accusers all in one moment. It's like he doesn't choose either of their you know, zero-sum game in that, in that moment. And, um, I, yeah, I don't know exactly what I was expecting from Braveheart Jesus movie, but this was really powerful for me because shame was lifted in that moment. And I think that is one of the... Uh, human experiences that has the most emotional resonance is when someone who's experiencing profound, deep shame has it lifted off of their heart and mind and, and lives. It is a beautiful thing. It often causes us to weep even when it's not us, even when we just see someone else experience it. To, to step into that freedom, to have shame lifted is such a profound, profound gift. And you see Jesus walking this line all through his ministry over and over. Whenever he meets people who think that they have it all together, who are filled with pride that they've arrived, that they're, they're the, the spiritual, religious, accomplished ones, he often raises the bar in a way that's unexpected to show them, oh my gosh, because of how arrogant you are, you, you're actually so much further off than you think. And then to the people who are broken, who are weighed down, who are carrying weights that are much too heavy for them to bear, he ends up, he ends up showing astonishing, sometimes even seemingly impossible amounts of grace to them. To the pride, he shows, oh, the holiness of God is more than you could possibly imagine. And to the broken, he says, you have no idea how low God will go to swoop you up and to embrace you. And, and, and some, in some way, at, at that time in my life, that, that picture and that trailer really, really captured captured my heart for, for seeing how Jesus lifts our shame and, and, and walks through the, those middle spaces. We're taking these 40 days after Easter, and we're looking at what, what, is it, what does it mean, what does it look like for, for people back in the, t- in the time of the scriptures and for us now, what does it mean, what's done in someone's life when Jesus' life, death, and resurrection comes, comes crashing in to, the, to, to a person's life or to a community? What does it look like for you, for us as a community, for, for Park Slope, for Brooklyn, for New York, to experience Jesus as the resurrection and the life? That's, 
some of the questions Jesus was dealing with in, in his 40 days after, after Easter before he ascended to the Father. It's what we're, we're wrestling with together. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what does it look like when his life intersects with ours and we're brought into union with him? Now, that's the type of thing you expect a, a preacher or a church to be covering, talking about. But just think about it for a minute. What do you imagine practically happens when someone comes into relationship with Jesus? When our lives intersect Jesus' life, when we're brought into union, what actually practically changes? Do we think about it in those terms very often? One sort of category category, um, way of thinking about it that we talk about at our church is that your identity changes to some degree, that your desires change, that the rhythms of your life change. So so it's, it's really profound. It's really holistic. The, the claims of the scripture is that actually who you are is transformed. The way you understand yourself and your life is fundamentally different. It's also, it also says that your desires change. What you want most in life begins to be transformed. And then if that's true, who you are and what you want is changed. And of course, how you live also is being transformed, right? There was, there's a huge uh, a breakdown in our lives when who we see ourselves to be and who we most want to be doesn't match our schedule, doesn't match our actual life, right? There's, there's uh, fragmentation and frustration that's, that's present there. The, the, there. There's some shifts, right? There's many ways that you could talk about this. One of the ways that at Trinity Grace Church we talk about someone coming into relationship with Jesus, being brought into to know him as the resurrection and the life is to, to mark some shifts that take place in their life. And, and here's a few of those shifts. And we, we, uh, we put the, the first is from death to life, right? That we talked about this last week, going for, like from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then freedom from, from the burden of shame to a place of knowing that you're accepted by God, loved by him, a son or daughter. Moving from a self-orientation to an other's orientation, right? Asking the world to rotate around, around you versus moving out in love toward, toward, towards the other. A, a corporate expression of that is from consumerism to mission, right? We're evaluating life and church and, 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 and our existence just based on what can I get from this place versus saying, no, I'm in a shared mission of love together with, with, with a, a, other people. And then all of that being held together by our religious life not being defined by striving by our own willpower, but by abiding in relationship with God. These, these are shifts that take place in someone's life when they come into relationship with Jesus. And we've been talking about these, these shifts for years. And the reason is because we're ultimately not primarily trying to be about novelty. <laughs> uh, we're, we're trying to see like sustained life change and transformation happen in us as individuals, as families, as, 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 as a community. So uh, like I said, last week we talked about moving from spiritual death to life. We're going we're gonna to move through these shifts um, in these 40 days after Easter. And this week we're looking at the powerful freedom that comes into someone's life. When through Jesus we go from shame to acceptance. From shame to acceptance. There, there's a, many people's lives who are transformed by Jesus, but, but some of the most powerful sort of turning point, hinge point moments are like the woman who, who's caught in adultery, who goes from, from a crushing, humiliating, life-threatening shame in her instance to being, to being free, right? And Jesus like navigates this incredible way. He, he sends her accusers away, humbled, and then he lifts her up and says, who, who condemns you? No one, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. He's not saying, listen, go right back into the patterns that brought you to, to this place. He's saying, out of the, the, the lack of condemnation, out of the freedom that I'm giving you, out of the acceptance that I've, that I've extended to you, go and live a new way. 
Peter deals with the exact same thing, right? We know that he's, he's, he's a, a bold, almost loud-mouthed disciple. He makes all these promises to Jesus. And then at the crucial moment when Jesus is, has been betrayed, right before the crucifixion, Peter denies him three times. One of the most powerful stories post-Easter is Jesus going to Peter and they have breakfast on the beach together. And he walks back through. He literally recreates the scene of, of where Peter first denied him and then denied him again and denied him three times. And he recreates the scene and, 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 and he says, he restores him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he, he takes away his shame. He says, listen, I have a plan for you. I'm gonna use you to build my church. We, we, we see it like there's a, a wake of people's shame being lifted by Jesus everywhere he goes. Everywhere that Jesus goes, shame is being lifted and being transformed and people are receiving the extravagant love of God. And today... I want to look at, look at the example that was in our text in Luke 23. It's the first beneficiary of the salvation that Jesus wins for us on the cross. And the thief on the cross, right? We, we've, we've, Mel Gibson depicted him for us. Thank you. Um, there's a few details of his story that I think if, if we will we'll meditate on them for just a few moments together, I think they'll be very, very helpful to, for, to, for us. So let's, we're going to set the scene for, for many of us, thanks to Mel Gibson or from reading the Gospels, the scene is familiar to us. But I want you to read it again. Look with me where it says, the text says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they, do, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So just think about this scene with me, right? We're outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has been drugged there. We know that he had trouble carrying the cross because of the, the intensity of the beating that took place where he was flogged before in the city that Simon of Cyrene had to help carry the cross, but now he's arrived outside the city. Crucifixion was obviously a horrific punishment. The Romans would not allow their own citizens um, to, to, be, to be victims of crucifixion because crucifixion was about setting the re- rebellious in line, to, of, of declaring, listen, don't forget all the sweetness of the Pax Romana. If you step out of line and you plot a rebellion, this will be your fate. We have means of keeping you in line. And so crucifixion was death by humiliation, Death by exposure to the elements and death ultimately by suffocation. For an economy of words, I'll give you a a little passage from The Faces of Jesus by Frederick Buechner. Listen to this. This is setting the scene for us of what's going on in the crucifixion. The condemned man was hoisted onto the cross with hands nailed or tied to the crossbar and feet to the upright. Since the weight would have quickly torn through the hands, the body was supported by a peg between the thighs or possibly some kind of support between the feet. Death was usually a long time coming. Cramps started in the muscles of the forearms and then spread into the whole upper body, the abdomen, the legs. With this enormous burden on the heart, the pulse inevitably slowed and the blood carried less and less oxygen to the lungs so that the victim slowly suffocated. Poisoned by waste matter that the heart was no longer strong enough to eliminate. The muscles were affected by spasms and caused excruciating pain. The ordeal often lasted as long as two or three days before the criminal finally ran out of strength and breath and died. Jesus was fortunate in surviving only a few hours. So we, we, we flash past the details. We know that even the physical suffering was just a small part of the overall 
agony of what Jesus was going through. But that's what, that's what it means, right? It says they took him out to the place of the skull. There was this outcropping of rocks that, you know, like you look into a, 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 the, the cloud, you know, some days and you, and you can see a shape. There was an outcropping of rocks that if you looked at it, it looked like a skull, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they had dragged Jesus out to this place. And they crucified him there along with the criminals. And the detail, there's a detail that's important in there that I want us to think about for just a minute. It says that they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Right? We've all heard that, that detail before probably. They divided up his clothes and they, and they were gambling for them. That means that Jesus was not wearing his clothes. Because they're being gambled for on the, on the, on the ground there in front of him. Death by humiliation. Death by exposure to the elements and death by suffocation. Jesus in this moment is naked and shamed. That's part of the, of the cross. There is a shame associated with the cross. This is, it's part of why it happened out of doors. This is not like quick and easy like the guillotine. It's for you to be there as, as, as an, uh, an ongoing symbol of what happens if you rebel against the powers that be. He is naked and shamed. Whatever else Jesus might have thought, whatever else people might have thought about Jesus before this, they are impressed and intimidated by him no more. We, we, we know that people who might have not had the courage, right? Jesus you know, demonstrated some miraculous power. He, he walked, when, when, when people heard his words, they said, this person teaches with authority. And there are people who you can imagine maybe even 48 hours before this might not have had the courage to say anything directly to Jesus, and now they're jeering at him. They're, they're mocking him. And the text says it like this. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. He, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one, he is naked, and he is being mocked. Naked and shamed. Now, I just said that phrase to myself a couple of times over, naked and shamed, naked and shamed. And, and if, you, if you do that, if you just consider like, oh, I've heard that before or something like that before, right? Our minds go back to a different place in the scriptures. In the first scenes of the book of Genesis, right? In the wildness and, and the poetry and the, and the beauty of this teeming, abundant world that God is making. And, and there's aspects of, of, of this extravagant creation that reflect the glory of God. And then at the crown of this creation, he makes human beings. And he says that human beings carry his image in some sort of unique way, distinct from the rest of creation. And when those human beings come together, that it is a beautiful thing, right? God presides over the first marriage and the poetry in the book of Genesis. And it says this, the man said, this now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, Right? She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God made us in his image with a capacity and the need for relationship with God, and also with a capacity and need for deep, intimate relationship with one another. Actually, that it's not good for us to fly solo, for us to be alone. That doesn't mean, of course, that doesn't mean that everyone is, 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 is meant to be married, but we are meant for intimate sharing, intimate friendship, deep, powerful relationship. When we, we say this all the time, right? When Jesus summarized the full scope of the scriptures, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what you're made for. And so this picture of human beings in, in, in the intimacy and innocence of this poetry in the garden in Genesis, it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. 
And that is a powerful thing, right? It happens in human relationships, right? We, you, you experience this parent to child. You experience this spouse to spouse. You experience, you experience this type of relationship where you're known all the way through by someone. They know the deepest parts about it. They know you when, you're, when you can't hide anything at all, and they love you. That is a powerful covenant type of love in the world. For them to know you all the way through and say, in front of me, you can be naked and unashamed. There's nothing that you have to hide. What, what an incredible love. That's where the story starts. Whatever else you believe about God, consider that that's the claim, right? That God's heart and desire for human beings made in his image is that they would be naked and unashamed. They would know his love and love for one another. And that's where the story starts. But by the time we get to Golgotha, to the skull, to this crucifixion moment, we're so far from there. And, and it seems to be that the scripture is teaching us that in order for us to get to, back to that place of God's intention, naked and unashamed, we have to have our shame removed. That the first thing that takes place in the garden when the fall t- happens is insecurity and fear and hiding. All of a sudden, there isn't the nakedness and unashamedness. So in order to do that, just think about this for a minute, whatever else you think about him, Jesus confronts our shame head on. He himself is crucified naked and shamed. We'll say more about this in just a few minutes, but whatever else you think about about God and how he thinks about you or how he might be disappointed or how he probably wishes that you were a little bit different or whatever imagination that you've made up for God, this, 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 this moment on the cross means that he's willing to be fully exposed and humiliated, shamed entirely to death for the sake of saying to you, your shame can be removed, you can be healed, you can be forgiven, you can be cleansed, you can be son, you can be daughter, you can be mine in the family forever. Jesus says a few things in these crucial moments on the cross, and, and each of them are really important details. The first that I want to point out is, th- is this famous prayer, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's naked, and he's, 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 he's being shamed. And it says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, Right? That's an incredible thing. The thing that I usually focus on, I think the thing most of us usually focus on, rightly so, is that Jesus is offering forgiveness in the middle of being crucified as an innocent person. He's being killed on trumped up charges because of a political scandal in order to get him out of the way. And to the people who are actually doing the execution, he's saying, Father, forgive them. He's demonstrating the very salvation that he's come to bring in his actual words. But the thing that I think we sometimes rush past is he says, for they do not know what they are doing. Think about that phrase with me for a minute. Of course they know what they're doing. <laughs> these, are, these are trained soldiers. They know exactly what they're doing. They're, they're, they're crucifying him in, in between two thieves as a sign of their power and dominance of Rome's might and control. And yet Jesus says, I want to offer you forgiveness. <laughs> but at the same time, I want you to know there's aspects of what you're doing that you don't even understand. There's aspects of it that you don't even see. Jesus is teaching us something about the nature of of sin, the nature of forgiveness, the nature of, of, of freedom in our world. We often think we are doing things 
right? This is the, this is like the, the top level cream of the American dream and how we're marketed to as a society right now. You have the freedom to make your choices. The highest d- degree of, 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 of abundant life is self-expression. We're on a pathward to upward mobility so that there's nothing limited to us by which we could say, I wanna make this choice and that choice would be denied to me because I had the resources to do it. I have the ability to do it. And so... Th- that, that's what we should do, right? And there's, the underside is almost never mentioned, but Jesus is saying there's an aspect of your choices when you take God out of consideration and when you live from a place that's just self-expression or, or the expression of selfishness, there's an underside that you don't even see. Father, forgive them. You don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know the, 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 the negative results that are being brought into your story because of this. He's saying there are things that are hidden from our sight and awareness in the spiritual reality of our world. There are results of choices that you and I make and when they're sinful, right? Which is a church word, a biblical word, of course, but it means to go against God and his character. When you say, I'm gonna functionally, maybe you don't say this explicitly, but in in practice you say, I'm gonna go my own way or I'm gonna go the way of the world, not considering God really. I'm going against God and his character. When I do that, there's results that I can see, but God, Jesus is saying in this moment, there are also results that you don't understand. Like the full scope of what's happening at the cross, the people who are participating in it didn't see. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You don't even know, right? So let's bring it down into our, our, our lives, that, that same reality just a little bit, right? My cutting remark that I give in the middle of a week that feels entirely justified because this person has wronged me and I have the words to say that I know can hurt back now, I don't see it, right? I see them sort of stiffen their chin and say something back to me, but what I've done is reinforced their insecurity. I thought you were that way. I thought this wasn't a place where, where I would be trusted, and, and, and right, I don't see the damage done to the trust, even though I had every right in my freedom of expression to say the cutting thing I wanted to say, right? There's a secret session of looking at someone else's body online, right? And we, 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 maybe we even feel a twinge of guilt about it, but we don't even realize, we don't even see how much we are, we, are, we are participating in a system of exploitation and violence. We're just doing something private in our own home and, and surely no one will be hurt by this. And yet he's saying, Father, there's mercy here, but you don't even see the scope. You don't even see the scope. There's an indulgence and we rightly feel entire, entitled to it. This is New York and we're working hard and the rent is too high. So we work hard all week and we, we come to some indulgence that we feel rightly entitled to. But what it does in an unseen way is sometimes it moves us further into the addictive territory. And we think that I'm choosing something by freedom, but actually we look up one day and I'm a little bit of a slave to this thing. I can't seem to get free from it. I can't seem to get out of this pattern of thinking or behavior. What about just our thoughts, right? I have pride in my mind and I evaluate myself against other people and I put myself in a particular hierarchy and then I lower someone else because of something I don't like about them. The pride in my imagination, that, that can't, I know there's mercy for that. There's mercy for everything in, in Jesus, but sometimes I'm not aware of the fact that the pride in my imagination is slowly distancing myself from the type of love that I'm made for. It's numbing me to true compassion for the other person. It's distancing me from, from relationship, from, from, from an expression and feeling love. All right, I'm, I'm giving examples. Hopefully we're, we're tracking together. I'll give you just a few more. Right, you express frustration with someone in our community. And, and, and you don't want to have to say it to them. And so you say it to your friend about how you're frustrated with them. 
And, and, and it feels right. It feels like I just need to get this off my chest. What this person did really bothers me. They irritate me. I, 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 I'm frustrated with them. It feels like it needs to be shared, but it, what it does is it begins to fray and break down strands of relationship. And so like the unseen thing is, right, it somehow gets back to the person you were talking about that you mentioned them, but also the person you were, you were venting to. They're like, do they talk about me like this when I'm not around? And right, that, the gossip, right, the insidious nature of how it just begins to, f- to fray the, the, the streams of our relationship. We, we don't see our greed or lack of generosity as directly play, pay, playing out in someone else's pain, right? Uh, maybe on, 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 on one level, it's good that it's not exactly linear. Like, I don't see that my withholding generosity, I'm not seeing the direct result of pain in someone else's life, but we affect each other profoundly. And it's really important to see the full scope of Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. Because that means for even an offense as heinous as as crucifying the Son of God, there's mercy. But we should be really careful because we also don't know the full scope of what we're doing. And sometimes one one of the results is that we walk into this cloud of shame. And we're not even able exactly to pinpoint one action or one specific place, but shame just is something that that becomes a ticker tape playing in our mind. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I feel like this good Christian stuff is for someone else. There's another category of people, and I'm not necessarily that. One of the results of our brokenness is that we carry the weight of shame on our shoulders. There's some great work that's been done in, the, in, in, in recent years. Brene Brown and some others who've done really interesting, helpful research on, on shame. It's the difference between shame and guilt, how, how, we, how we operate in, in, a, in a world at reinforcing structures that, that, that make us feel ashamed. But shame is, 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 is more a feeling of who you are than just guilt over a linear transactional mistake. Like, I feel bad about this thing that I did. Shame is I feel bad about who I am, right? It's internalizing a critical glare. That's what happens with, with shame, is we, we let that ticker tape of unworthiness play over and over again, and so that we, we sort of internalize a critical glare. It relates to your identity. I didn't just make some mistakes, I am a mistake. That's shame. It's one of the compounding effects of the brokenness of our world. And it's why Jesus doesn't just remove our sin. He doesn't just say, Father, forgive them. He says, Father, forgive them. And then let's take care of the parts they can't even see. The things they wouldn't even know they were going to walk into. Listen and notice just a few more details. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, to G, to, then he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him truly, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. There's something that's described in the New Testament it's basically like falling into the pattern of the world. And that if, if you're not paying attention to what's forming you spiritually, then there's a good chance you're going to fall into the pattern of the world. And the first criminal has done that. He's repeating word for word what we've already heard the others around him saying and mocking of Jesus. Like he's not even creative in his insults. 
He's just fallen into the pattern of the world. This is what self-expression looks like. This is how I, I move forward in, in, in the expression of myself. And, and it's, not even, it's not generative. It's not creative. It's just a repeat. He's just parroting someone else's, you know, the, the, the desires that have been marketed to him by someone else. The second criminal, criminal does something else entirely, something new. And what he does is he shows us, and this is a fa- a, a, a especially important when we're, when we're dealing with shame as he shows us the power of confession and of honest request. The power of confession and honest request in pushing back against shame is incredibly powerful. He says these words, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. What does he do? He confesses the truth about himself and he confesses the truth about Jesus. Those two elements are always true when someone begins to experience the life and death and resurrection of Jesus as, as breaking into their life. When someone believes the gospel, one of the things you'll see show up over and over again is they make a true confession about themselves. They stop hiding. And even if they're naked and shamed, they're there. They're, and then they also make a true confession about Jesus. I know we're getting what we deserve and this man isn't. It's the beginning of a gospel confession. And then he comes and makes an honest request, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have a, a well-formulated, you know, altar call Jesus response prayer. He's just like, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has some sense, right? We know that this has to be revealed to him. That, that there's a spiritual work taking place even on the cross that this man makes a true confession of himself, a true confession about who Jesus is, and an honest request. Please remember me. I'll say this to you. Those same elements... Of, of, of believing in the gospel and trusting Jesus for salvation, they show up over and over and over again. Honest confession. Seeing Jesus for who he really is as the one who forgives and lifts shame. The one who's, who's stepped in and died naked in shame so that we wouldn't have to be. Asking for God to receive us and knowing that we, receiving a promise that you are received, right? That's part of believing the gospel too, that last thing. What does, he, what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. But we don't see what that actually looks like. The same thing happens for you when you believe the gospel. You receive a promise. Your identity is changed. You're forgiven. You're healed. You're cleansed. You're given the Holy Spirit. It's a deposit. It's a promise. But you don't experience the full reality of it. We're still waiting for the, for the, the future tense reality of our salvation. So right now we're in a struggle to believe the acceptance that is ours. To be in actual practice who God says that we are. To move from shame to acceptance. The man receives a promise of rich welcome into the kingdom of God, and then just a few hours later, he receives it. Jesus says, truly, today, you will be with me in paradise. And this says something, this is the last thing I'll mention. It says something about the promise of grace. It's so good that this is the first person to experience the salvation of Jesus, and Jesus is still on the cross. I mean, it's pretty effective, um, but what we can say, this stands forever. It cannot be construed that people receive welcome into the kingdom of God, mercy or forgiveness, because of doing better or promises to do better or earning it whatsoever. Not because they do better, they promise to do better, or they earn it whatsoever. The salvation that comes through Jesus is entirely won by Jesus. This is a story about how good he is, and we're getting a share of that. And no matter how fantastic you are at sinning, you're not good enough to be more powerful than what's happening on the cross. 
The thief on the cross is there, present at this horrific moment. No, we don't even know all the things that he's done, but we know he has one moment where he turns just slightly, and it's like the prodigal son and the father, right? The, the son's coming home, nervously wringing his hands, saying, I've got a prepared speech, and maybe my father will receive me as a slave, and the father sprinting out, humiliating himself. It's a humiliation for, for a Jewish father to run, and this time he's humiliating himself. And he gets to his son, and he doesn't let him talk, and he embraces him. And he gets a ring on his finger, and he says, restored authority to my house. And he puts a robe on him. He says, you're part of my family again. I want you to live here like a son. And he's killed the fatty calf. We're going to have a massive party for you. And that's the thief on the cross. Maybe you could just remember me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So let it never be said that the power of the gospel flows through our earning or deserving or ability to promise to do better. It is entirely grace. That's how you move from shame to acceptance. And then the way you live as a person who's been accepted is that you can start to experience freedom. You can start to experience life in a new way. Not because you're earning it, but because you're already in the house You're already there. This man offers nothing but desperation. No great acts of penance. No put together spiritual achievements. And yet he is accepted. He's welcomed in. Your shame, my shame can be covered because Jesus was willing to die naked and shamed. We trust in the promise in the same way the thief does. Today you will be with me in paradise. I'm gonna declare a reality over you you that moves you from death to life and moves you from shame to acceptance. So my question for us is really honestly, right? We say church is family all the time. This is the moment where you can consider as honestly as you're willing to, what's going on in your life? What What do you feel trapped by? What is the ticker tape playing in your mind? What do you need freedom from? What do you need to know the acceptance of Jesus in? Where are the places that you've been beaten down or, 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 or ashamed? What, what, what are the things that you've, had, you've thought, like, I'm just going to have to get that fixed before I'm really going to be able to be, like, walking with God? I'm going to have to do this thing before I'm really going to be forgiven and brought into his kingdom. The thief on the cross is saying, it is all mercy, it is all grace, it is all the accomplishment of Jesus. So let me pray for you that we could receive that this morning. Heavenly Father, I wanna pray over that reality that even if we have been brought from spiritual death to life, we know your, your grace and salvation. There's still ways that we don't even understand that we, that we walk back into shame, that we walk back into feeling trapped or beaten down. Some of the, some of the ways that they're, they're, they're clear, we know them. I pray you would set us free from things that have trapped us that we know about, things that we could name patterns of thought and behavior that, that, are, that are trapping us in, in shame, that are trapping us in a cycle of, of, of behaviors that we don't want to make. And I pray also for those things that are, that are there, that are weighing on our souls, that are making us anxious and depressed, and we don't even know why. We need mercy for the, for the aspects we don't understand. I pray that you would come and be the shame lifter in this place. I pray the resurrection power of Jesus would be here. That as we worship, as we sing, as we come to the table, that you would lift our burden, that we would see that it has been placed on you and you're, you're able to carry it. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each person here? Would you show us the ways that we are meant to respond? God, we love you, but we do confess you first loved us and our love flows from that first love. 
We thank you that you long for us to be naked and unashamed. We thank you that you were willing to be shamed on our behalf on the cross. Lead us, Holy Spirit, in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.